Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we discuss vaccines, the science that brought us such an incredible solution to public health crises, the human response to vaccines, mandates, and scientific information, and how misinformation has derailed clear communication. My guest is Greta Keenan, Program Specialist for Science and Society at the World Economic Forum. Thank you so much for being here today. So uh, you wrote this great article about vaccines, just sort of talking about issues beyond just the immediate emergency. What prompted you to take on and write that article? I'm very interested in this interface between the scientific discoveries we make, but also then how we apply them for societal good. So for me, vaccines are a very good example of that. You have the innovation angle, but then you need to have the mass rollout um, in a vaccination campaign and widespread public acceptance of a vaccine for it to work. So it really is at that interface between science and society. Uh, And at that time, April 2020 is when I wrote this blog post, we were one month after the WHO had declared COVID-19 a pandemic. And we really were at the very beginning of a journey that we're now two, three years into. Uh, And we had no vaccines on the horizon at that point. So really, I was looking back at the history of vaccination to try and learn some lessons about what the future outlook could be. And given what you wrote then and what you've witnessed to this point, Were you surprised by the response uh, to vaccines for COVID-19? So I guess there's two parts uh, to your question, Gina. The first is on, am I surprised by the scientific innovation that's happened in this short period of time? And absolutely, uh, I shouldn't be surprised because I'm a science enthusiast and I work very closely with scientists. um, So I have every confidence in them and in in the scientific method. But really, it's astounding that in the short period of time since I wrote this article, not even two years ago, um, you know, we now have several, not just one, but several vaccines that have approved for use in humans. Um, Over half of the world's population have received a first dose of a vaccine. Um, So it's really an astounding scientific but public health feat that has occurred. But the second part, I suppose, of your question is, have I been surprised by the response on the the human side? So society's acceptance or lack of of vaccines. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised because if there's anything we've learned from history, it's that there will always be resistance to public health measures, to mandated vaccines. Um, so, So we shouldn't be surprised. I think what makes it so complex in today's world compared with um, previous pandemic scenarios is that there's this whole issue with most of the world being connected to the internet and issues around disinformation and distrust. And so public health agencies and individuals trying to combat a pandemic are really working an unprecedented scenario of having to combat disinformation. And given past responses to vaccines, it's not as if disinformation didn't exist or skepticism or suspicion, but it's on just a a whole new level at this point in time with the internet. Absolutely. I think it's just turbocharged. Yes. So let's, let's go back. The first 
vaccine variolation, what that is, and also was there resistance to variolation when it was developed? Variolation actually refers to this method of inoculating against smallpox. Uh, And smallpox is one of history's most feared viruses because it had a death rate of about three in 10 people who contracted the virus. Um, And it severely scarred those who were able to survive it. And variolation was this method of inoculating to give people immunity against smallpox. Um, The reason it's actually called variolation was because the Latin name for the smallpox virus was variola. In this process, one would take scabs from patients with smallpox, grind them up, uh, and then either inhale them or rub them into superficial scratches on the skin, this would trigger an immune response and hopefully provide protection against full-blown smallpox infection. Um, And we know that practices took place uh, in parts of Asia as early as the 16th century, um, but it wasn't really until the 1720s that it made its way to Europe. An English aristocrat named Lady Mary Wortley Montague to thank for that. Uh, She was the wife of the British ambassador to Turkey at the time, and she'd witnessed this procedure of variolation in Constantinople in 1717, and she had her son variolated in Turkey, and then her daughter received this procedure in England in 1721. Initially, this was met with resistance, uh, particularly in, in Europe. So much so that the first experimental variolation that took place in England was carried out on condemned prisoners who were actually promised freedom if they survived, uh, which they did, Wow! by the way, yes. But nevertheless, it wasn't without danger. Two to three percent of inoculated individuals died and there were some outbreaks. Um, And particularly, I know you, you have a US audience. Many officials in the US distrusted the science and blamed inoculation for spreading the disease. Um, so, so there was resistance to this early procedure called variolation. How did we get from there to modern day vaccines? Well, fast forward a few decades, and there was an, a new iteration of inoculation, which turned out to be much safer than this variolation. And that came from an observation that dairy farmers, so those working with cows, didn't seem to catch smallpox. Um, And the 18th century English doctor, Edward Jenner, who's sometimes known as the father of vaccination, hypothesized that prior infection with cowpox, which is essentially a mild illness spread from cattle, might be responsible for protection against smallpox. And by the way, just going back to the Latin origins, um, vacca in Latin means cow, and that's how we got to the term vaccination. I do love that, that vacca is now vaccine. I mean, I love that little tidbit. Absolutely. (laughs) Armed with this this insight, uh, and again, talking about human rights have come on, certainly scientific and medical ethics have come a long way, because back then in 1796, Edward Jenner inoculated an eight-year-old boy by taking pus from cowpox lesions on a milkmaid's hands and introducing this fluid into a cut in the boy's arms and then essentially exposing him to smallpox and seeing whether he had developed resistance, which indeed he had. Um, He followed that up with several other experiments um, and then published his results, um, which basically showed that you could protect against smallpox using, using cowpox. His results were met with some scepticism. But by roughly 1800, 
vaccination had spread beyond England and other European countries uh, and also to the United States. Variolation, 2 to 3% is not an insignificant number. It seems small in the percentage world, but it's uh, that's a lot of people. And so there is a kernel of uh, understanding as to why maybe there was some skepticism about variolation, even though 97 to 98% might do well. Um, and then you have better results with this cowpox, smallpox uh, inoculation. And yet the skepticism persists. Uh, what were the reasons initially um, in, in that time for the skepticism? Back then, we didn't have mass media. Um, so on the one hand, there might have been less disinformation that could be spread in the way it can today and across social media. But at the same time, you also might struggle to pump out factual information and updates about death rates being inoculated versus actually contracting the virus. So I think there's many reasons back then um, that still persist today as to why people would resist being inoculated. And some of them back then were much more to do with, you know, it was quite gory, to be honest, you know, creating scratches on the skin and taking pus and rubbing it in. It was quite a gory procedure. And I think that would take some time to, to socialize. I think additionally, and even in today's world, basically us humans are not very good at interpreting risk. So as you've correctly said, two to 3% of people who were inoculated died. And that is not a great percentage. But when you compare that to the 30% that would die from contracting uh, the virus, uh, it actually sounds a lot better. And I think back then, people weren't very good at understanding risk. And I think that unfortunately persists today. Yes. So today, even though COVID-19, we've learned that serious illness and death is, is a small percentage of people with, you know, we have 330 million people in the U.S. We have up on 8 billion now in the world. So if you're talking about even a less than 1%, that's millions upon millions of people. And then there are the vaccines, which have been shown to work well. But there is this like disconnect as far as how we understand and how we contextualize that information. I was going to ask you to help explain it by talking about the percentage of people that were seriously harmed from polio, which I also understand was very small. I think what you can learn about the polio incident is that back in the 50s, when the first polio vaccine was approved for use in, in the U.S., um, people were rushing to get their children vaccinated, but partly because they'd spent decades witnessing children having severe paralysis, um, ending up with iron lung. It was all very devastating. And so people really wanted to protect their children against that, understandably. And so there really was a concerted effort to be vaccinated. Unfortunately, there was an incident in the US it was a very unfortunate case um, called the Cutter Incident, where in one of the manufacturing plants that was creating this vaccine, the process of killing the polio virus uh, that would go into the vaccines was defective. And as a result, some of the batches produced by the company that went out mistakenly contained active polio virus. Um, and of the 200,000 children who received the defective vaccine, 40,000 contracted polio, 200 were left with varying degrees of paralysis and 10 died. So naturally, polio vaccinations were temporarily halted in 1955 following that. Um, and it was really 
a devastating blow for the vaccination campaign. But what was so interesting was that as soon as the vaccination programme resumed, you saw parents really moving back to getting their kids vaccinated in spite of this tragedy. And I think that was really because I'm a science communicator uh, by training. In terms of the communication, it was very clear what had happened, what mistake had been made and where. And also to reinstate that this would not happen again and to move forward with the vaccination programme to protect individuals from polio. And there really was trust in the campaign. And so it just resumed. And we've basically gotten into the state where the disease is is almost completely eliminated. Which is incredible. And, and you know, it's interesting, in, in the sense of science communication or communication in any form, clarity is, is so important. But human nature still exists. And so I do find it fascinating that in the 50s and early 60s, that people, you know, really, really embraced and trusted and continued to trust given that incident. And I think it has a lot to do with what you said, that the disease itself was so visibly horrifying or so visibly traumatic or terrible. And and also in the U.S. at that time, there was sort of a singular World War II had just happened. Everyone was kind of behind a message. And I think that persisted. Fast forward to today, and we've got, you know, how many media outlets? We've got social media. We've got rampant polarization. And then the speed the speed of the vaccine, you talked about earlier the spectacular and amazing feat that scientists achieved. But that in itself can be uh, concerning. Was it rushed? Did they not take great care? And even though there's been messaging to try to combat that, it has not landed on everyone's ears. Pew Research Center conducted a survey of more than 10,000 US adults in August 2021, so about six months ago. And they had many fascinating findings that came out of this. Um, for instance, how political leaning correlated with the likelihood that you would take a vaccine. But in, in regards to the speed of rolling out vaccines, this fact was very compelling. What they found in this survey is vaccination status is strongly linked with confidence in the vaccine R&D process. So around nine in 10 adults who were at least partially vaccinated as of August said they had a great deal or fair amount of confidence in the vaccine research and development process, compared with only 21% of those who were not vaccinated. So it does go to show there's there's many reasons why people might not trust um, or choose not to become vaccinated. But it's particularly interesting that on the scientific side, really the process of research and development and the communication of research and development is uh, particularly important. And part of that comes down to scientific literacy and making sure that in schools, children grow up with an understanding of the scientific method and, and how it works and how scientists don't always have the right answer. They have data and they make interpretations and sometimes that they build on that data. That's that's the scientific method um, and the interpretations can can change, which is disconcerting if you don't understand that, that process. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Greta Keenan of the World Economic Forum. Additionally, there was a failing in the communication, I think, particularly around uh, mRNA vaccines. You know, I might proudly sit here with two shots of an mRNA vaccine in my arm. Same here. I think it's a fantastic miracle. But, you know, some people um, are of the 
belief that this is a new technology. They don't understand how it works. They are led to believe through through communication that they see that this is very new. But but where the message has got lost is that mRNA vaccines haven't just developed over the last two years. You know, this is built on a decade of science which has gone into this, but that message has been poorly communicated uh, to to individuals, as well as the safety aspect. And one final thing, I suppose, on the on the acceptance and the research and development, and particularly where people feel uncomfortable with a new type of vaccine that they're not familiar with or they don't understand. Um, I think what is encouraging is that as time goes on and more COVID vaccines are approved, that could help bring the vaccination rates up for individuals who've been holding back as they're a bit hesitant of the types of vaccines that have existed. Two out of the three approved in the States are these mRNA vaccines. Um, Another one is a viral vector vaccine. But there is now at least approved just in the UK and probably soon in the US, this Novavax um, vaccine, which is using more of the traditional approach that has been used for hepatitis B. And it's really using a piece of the virus and injecting that. So possibly by broadening the spectrum of vaccines, we can also encourage people who haven't yet been vaccinated to choose an approach that might be more familiar and comfortable for them. That's a great point. And then communicating that, that this actually is Uh, the same as these other vaccines you've already taken. The other issue, in addition to just vaccine resistance, is resistance to being told what to do, uh, being mandated to take a vaccine. Here in the U.S. to go to school, we need to get vaccines. And mandates have been around. Uh, George Washington, our first president, mandated smallpox vaccine um, during the Revolutionary War uh, to, to save his troops. So what do you have to say about the concept of the mandate and the response that you've seen over history? So as you've quite rightly pointed out, we are familiar now in recent times of seeing vaccine mandates splashed across newspapers uh, and in online news media every other week. But this is not something new, as you've correctly pointed out. So this did start um, back in 1777 um, with President George Washington uh, and really ensuring that his army of soldiers undergo variolation. So remember, this was actually before Edward Jenner came up with the safer inoculation with cowpox virus. So that was mandated. Uh, And once the safer vaccine uh, came in, American soldiers received it right through to the Second World War. Um, And in that period, there were also mandates for um, American soldiers to receive vaccines against typhoid, influenza, tetanus, cholera, diphtheria, plague, and yellow fever. So this has been around for a long time. Um, Fast forward to 2006, soldiers in the US Armed Forces received 13 different vaccinations with different and additional doses depending on where they were being posted. And in the COVID context, um, the Pentagon announced a vaccine mandate for the armed forces last August with the deadline of December. Um, And you're probably seeing as well news articles in recent weeks saying that, you know, if the military personnel refuse to have the vaccine, that they can in fact be discharged from duty. Um, So vaccine mandates throughout history have been very present for the armed forces. Um, But 
there have been vaccine mandates also for regular citizens. And there was one famous case um, of a smallpox outbreak in Massachusetts in 1902. And the Board of Health of Cambridge basically said, we need everyone vaccinated um, of all residents in Massachusetts to really get a handle on this thing. And there was one particular resident, a man named Henning Jacobson, and he was fined $5, which in today's money is about $150, uh, for refusing a smallpox vaccination on the grounds that he'd had an adverse reaction with the vaccination when he was a child. So he pursued this case right the way to the Supreme Court, arguing, you know, it was it was a violation of his uh, personal liberty. Um, and in 1905, the court basically dismissed it and said mandatory vaccinations were not arbitrary or oppressive, and they didn't really exceed what was reasonably required for the safety of the public. And this has really been seen time and time again in the Supreme Court, where a string of anti-vaccine lawsuits have been dismissed. I think the, the court has typically decided that a government's duty to safeguard the health of a complete community and all its citizens does take priority over some individual rights. As you did point out, though, you know, the US isn't alone in vaccine mandates. In most North and South America uh, and much of Europe, childhood vaccinations are mandatory. Australia bans the enrolment of unvaccinated children in preschools and childcare centres, and parents who don't vaccinate their children aren't eligible for child benefits. Globally, universities often ask for inoculation records, and of course, if you need to travel to somewhere, um, you have to take certain jabs often in order to be granted entry to those countries. Um, and in terms of COVID, many countries have made the jab compulsory in some capacity or other, um, particularly for government sector employees. So the consequences here when people refuse the vaccine can range from fines to suspension from work without pay. So we've really seen a spate of articles about vaccine mandates. But the, the key message here is that this isn't actually new. And throughout history, um, different governing bodies, whether that's um, government agencies or employers, have actually mandated um, that citizens take a vaccine for one thing or another. You touched on it in, in your response just now, but the why aspect of a mandate. It's not arbitrary as, as the Supreme Court has ruled or as courts have ruled. From a public health perspective, at least in the U.S. context, we have lots of different conversations about rights, but even our very First Amendment, freedom of speech, expression, you have to balance that with other rights. And we can't yell fire in a crowded theater. We can't threaten. We can't, um, you know, obscen obscenity is not protected in, here in the U.S. And, and so it's that balancing of rights. And so, uh, you know, in that context, why, from a public health perspective, would we need or want or should we embrace a mandate? Besides clean water, vaccines are probably the most effective public health intervention that exists um, and saved the most lives of public health interventions over the years. So they really are an amazing public health tool. And so in the context of a pandemic or a virus that is, is spreading, Governments uh, and leaders generally do need to weigh up, you know, where an individual's liberties start and stop and where community liberties start and stop. And 
it really is a challenging task. You know, I don't, I don't envy the individuals having to make these decisions, but really for an unvaccinated individual, they really could be putting the lives of others at risk, the lives of a community at risk. Um, and so really the aim of the mandate is not to tell people what to do, but it's really to encourage more with a stick than with a carrot, bringing an end to deadly pandemics. We touched on the idea of misinformation and, and of course, conspiracy theories are part of that. And they're running rampant at this moment in, in our history. As a science communicator, how might you advise addressing that? It's a multifaceted issue. Um, and so many people will need to make a concerted effort to tackle it. Is it the responsibility of governments? Is it the responsibility of citizens um, sharing information, putting out information? Is it the responsibility of the tech companies who provide platforms for people to share information? Um, and I think finally, we're, we're at a point in history where everyone acknowledges this is an issue and we now need to work together to combat it. I'd love to actually quote, we had um, Dr. Anthony Fauci in one of our sessions just a few weeks ago. And what Dr. Anthony Fauci said in this session on, on COVID and the outlook for 2022 is, you know, one of the things the entire world is facing, but we're facing it at a disconcerting rate in the United States, is the amount of disinformation that's accompanying the problem where everyone should pull together against a common enemy, which is the virus. We have disinformation, which is entirely destructive to a public health endeavor. And I'm not sure how we're going to counter that, except getting out as much correct information as we possibly can and use social media in a positive way, as opposed to the somewhat destructive way in which it's being used right now. One of the approaches could be to pump out counter disinformation, misinformation with correct information. Do I think that's enough? Probably not. Um, I think there will be responsibility of tech companies to help and to try and allow better reporting systems uh, where if individuals see information that is false or misleading, they can flag it um, for removal, which they have already been doing, blocking individuals who are purposely pumping out disinformation. But additionally, I think there's a lot to say for behavioural science. And I think scientists are very good at doing science. Some scientists are very good at communicating what they do, but not everyone. And so really, I think training scientists to become better at communicating their work, um, at communicating risks, but also possibly changing tack if they need to. So rather than telling people, well, you've got to get a vaccine because it's going to protect the community, if that message isn't working, perhaps we need to shift to a different message, which is about, well, actually, it's going to reduce significantly reduce your individual uh, risk of severe disease and death. Um, it's going to protect your child if they get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that there's going to be an interesting exploration of carrot versus stick in terms of um, incentivizing people to be vaccinated 
in the wider context of mis and disinformation around the vaccines. And you brought up earlier uh, science literacy and media literacy, which is also a responsibility of schools. Is there anything that you would like to say that we haven't talked about that you feel it's important for people to know? The most important message is that vaccines are an incredible public health tool. They will probably not be the silver bullet, um, as they haven't always been in the past either. Um, But really, they are one tool of many public health measures that together can bring an end to this, but indeed other pandemics. And really, it's the responsibility of governments, um, but also the private sector and individuals to come together to have a dialogue um, and where people aren't comfortable having a vaccine, it's to communicate what those are so that people can better understand uh, and not just make judgments um, and really move forward to end this thing. There are reasons to be optimistic. Science has prevailed and really that's thanks to all of the fantastic decades worth of investment in research and development. But there is still more to be done, particularly in terms of communication um, and really listening to one another. Thank you to my guest, Greta Keenan, Program Specialist for Science and Society at the World Economic Forum. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.